This is the question and response episode to the Day of the Lord. We did a six-part podcast series on Day of the Lord. Six hours of us talking (laughs) about the Day of the Lord. Holy cow. And uh, many of you listened to it. Yeah. And I think think it was really beneficial. It was beneficial for me. Mm. I think a lot of other people found Mm. it beneficial. Yeah, I was really stimulated too. It was great. I learned learned a lot. But it left a lot of questions mm-hmm. remaining. <laughs> and so we want to spend a little bit of time answering some of those questions. Yeah, like all of life's most significant questions, um, there's no way that six hours can scratch the surface. So <laughs> we Remember, should... we're not using that metaphor anymore. Oh, scratch the surface? Oh, yeah. yes. I don't like it. Um, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what the I think I replace was. it with architectural cave spelunking. Spelunking. Just when you think you got to the deepest chamber and then you realize, right. oh, there's more. Mm-hmm. It's like that. Cool. We haven't spelunked deep enough. <laughs> so the reason why we call this Q&R, question and response, why do we call it Q&R? Oh, well, question and answer is so presumptuous. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, For some of these types of questions, like we just said, there are more or less faithful responses. (laughs) Um, But for some questions like this, there's no way that one simple answer uh, can do justice to a complex, large topic like God's justice on human evil. (laughs) It's so multifaceted. And so, yes, we just call it Q and R. We're happy to respond to every question. But... Uh, that doesn't mean that our response is comprehensive or doesn't leave room for any more questions. Right. I just, I it's just, not definitive. Yeah. I just feel like the more, the, 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 the humble, the road of humility yeah. is to say, I have a response and I think it's right, but ask me in five years after I've read and thought some more and I might actually have a, a better response. And any of these questions could turn into an hour long dialogue. Yes. Yeah, so John's going to force me to not allow that to happen. Oh, well, I better not continue to ask questions on behalf of these people or it'll happen. Our first question comes from Andrew File, and here it is. Hey, guys, Andrew from Fresno, California. Thanks for the video. Uh, I've noticed that how you view the Day of the Lord has a lot of implications from how you serve and how you engage the world. Um, How do you go about having conversations with folks that have one of the extreme views uh, that the world is going to burn and, you know, it's a a picture of violence and wrath? How do you go about having conversations and challenging that view uh, with those you interact with? Thanks, guys. Yeah, really great question, Andrew. I mean, there's one sense in which any any view you hold on the, the Day of the Lord will always be an extreme view. Because it's an extreme <laughs> claim to make, no matter what your view is of how it will happen. Hmm. It's a view that says... Something extreme will happen. Yeah, a crucified Jewish man 2,000 years ago is claimed to be raised from the dead. And his invisible presence <laughs> is with his followers for however long, leading up to the day when he's going to come physically again and remove evil and confront it yeah. from, from the world. That's a very extreme view to hold <laughs> on whatever, the meaning of life. Yeah. So, so it makes sense why everybody's understanding of how this goes down is going to create some kind of extreme response. Hmm. You certainly can't be milk toast in how you... Hold that kind of view. Milk toast? Milk toast. What is that? It's just a phrase that means 
blah. Yeah? Yeah. Like I don't just, know that phrase. Uh, lukewarm. I'm trying to think Milk of a n- non-figure of speech. To Well, I get the, the I get it now, but <laughs> where does that come from? Milk, Milk toast. Milk toast. Sorry. Aren't you supposed to keep me from these rabbit trails? Ah, I just need to know now. <laughs> Urban Dictionary. Milk toast was often given to sick people as a bland diet. Easy on the digestive tract. Milk. Oh. Toast soaked in milk. It's toast soaked in milk. Yeah. It's given to those who are sickly or weak. So it's the idea of, I'm going to give you a, a response that really doesn't have a, it won't irritate you. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> milk that's toast. great. It's milk toast. Yeah. Anyhow, so, okay, great question. So your view won't be toast so, soaked in milk. Yeah. So nobody's view is going to be average. Milky it's not toast. an average view to hold about how sure. his, history will culminate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, some people uh, believe that the world will be engulfed in great violence instigated or connected to Jesus' return mm-hmm. or that the cosmos is going to be dissolved by divine fire or that Jesus' defeat of evil is going to be as equally as creative and, and surprising as his robbing evil of its power by the crucifixion, which blew everybody's minds. Mm-hmm. So I think... The, the point, you said, Andrew, is really great, is conversation. <laughs> you relate to people of different views by trying to understand them. Why do they hold that view? Yeah. And n- nobody, very few people hold a view on something that they don't think there are reasons for. So um, somebody who has a different view has what in their mind are good reasons. And so I should try and understand those sympathetically because I might be missing something. And then you get to a place where you, if you disagree, you disagree. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the theology nerd term for this whole set of questions and issues in the Bible is eschatology. Mm-hmm. just means final things. The, the precise doctrine about the details of how history will end and Jesus' return has never been a matter of core orthodoxy in the Christian tradition. In other mm-hmm. words, Jesus, the Son of God, died for the sins of the world, was raised from the dead, he'll return, right? This is Apostles' Creed, classical, Catholics, Protestants, whoever agrees. Mm-hmm. How and when Jesus will return and what's the precise manner <laughs> of him? Like Christians have disagreed as far back as we can tell from the earliest centuries going out. Mm-hmm. There is no orthodox view. There's just different views that, that some people think are more faithful or less faithful to the Bible. But those definitions differ from group to group, and so we just need a lot of humility in talking about uh, these types of difficult topics in the Bible. One one view that is very prevalent in uh, Western Christianity... It's about, just the view know, that many American Protestants have grown up in. Yeah. Or something? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, the view that well, I grew up in, yeah. and many American Protestants grew up in, mm-hmm. is uh, this very c- clear timeline of apocalyptic events that are going to happen yeah. on the geopolitical stage yeah. and um, and then and then tied to the earth being destroyed and, and yeah. all this stuff what's difficult is when you hold a view like that it really it has a lot of implications on your politics yeah and it has implications on yeah how you decide you're going to live on the planet take care of the planet or not, 
you know, so many real life implications. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of his question is, if this has so many implications for your life, and if you have an extreme view, Mm-hmm. Then it's, it's it's creating extreme implications. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah, totally. Um, it's very difficult to let go of certain mm-hmm. conceptions that have really formed mm-hmm. your imagination. So I think you're being really generous when you say you can just talk to someone and just kind of work it out. I think people get really rooted <laughs> in yeah. in their ideas. Well, I don't know about work it out. I think most people just stay in whatever tradition formed their ideas about this topic in the first place. Yeah. And so, but switching, you know, listening to different voices that are really seriously engaging the Bible, Mm -hmm. but that offer a different point of view, it takes a lot of humility to be open to changing your view and then changing your lifestyle or the tradition of Christianity you associate with because of that. But this goes back to just being a follower of Jesus. I think this is just 101. Like Jesus... Following Jesus requires a conviction about who Jesus is, but always recognizing I am probably fundamentally mistaken in many things that I believe about <laughs> the whole package. Yeah. And, and it's not being wishy-washy. It's just saying I should always be open to another point of view, especially if it's a view that's really somebody who's taking Jesus' teachings and the scriptures seriously. And so, yes, different Christians will come to fundamentally opposite conclusions and ways of life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on because of some of these topics. And, and someone's wrong. Yeah, somebody's wrong. Or everyone's wrong. It's always the other person. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm, I remember a number of my early professors showed me this drawing of, cons- there's many ways you can do it, but like concentric circles. Uh-huh. And like at the core is what's classic Christian orthodoxy. You know, what is named earlier. Jesus is son of God, God embodied it as a human, lived, died for our sins, was raised. He's bringing his kingdom once for all. Amen. That's at the center. And if the moment you don't hold to any of those things, I don't know why you would want to be associated with the Christian movement other than it maybe has good moral teachings. But to hold those things is to be a Christian. But then around that is a whole bunch of really important issues. The fact that you hold this or that view on baptism or how a church ought to be organized you know, or structured, or how people interact with the Holy Spirit, or what's the work of the Holy Spirit right now. Those mm-hmm. are really important things. Mm-hmm. But they uh, have historically had really diverse groups of Christians with different ideas. And so that's a second tier out, and we should be able to respectably differ. And then you can get a third tier out from there. And actually, I think out there is where the stuff about eschatology and the timing and nature of the return of Jesus is. Okay. So, but, and, but some people would fundamentally disagree yeah, with my tier that's system. A, yeah, totally. I've met, yeah, totally. I have good friends. I've met people who actually think that that's, that's at the center. It's all one package. You can't like separate it out. And I, I just, I disagree. I mean, how can it be a third tier thing when it, it implicates hmm. how you think human history is going to go down? Yeah, I don't mean third tier in terms of less importance. I'm just talking about third tier in our degree of certainty about the views that we hold on this very important topic. Yeah. Yeah. The topic's extremely important. What I'm putting in third tier is the degree of confidence or certainty that I'm going to have that I am correct. And that's a temperament thing, I guess. But I think it's a temperament that all of Jesus' followers should have because 
That's just what Jesus, that's how Jesus rolled. You know what I'm saying? Be humble and don't take yourself too seriously. That's you know? a that's a Jesus quote. Oh, sorry. That's me paraphrasing. <laughs> that's me paraphrasing. Like, don't worry. Okay. Tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. Um, you worry about being faithful in this moment. I'm trying to summarize the Sermon on the Mount in a sentence. Okay. I'm not doing a very good job. <laughs> anyway. All right. So this leads us into a, a good question by Matthew Leedy. Thanks for the work you do. My question is. How orthodox is the information you presented on the day of the Lord? In my post-truth culture, it is hard enough to have open dialogue with my evangelical friends about topics like this that have marinated in pop culture for so many years. I am wondering where these general views, as you presented them, fall along the spectrum of orthodox Christian thought. Are there certain ideas that are more controversial than others? Before you answer that question, yeah, let's do a really quick summary yeah. of like what the view... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, is yes. that's being that yeah. we're discussing, because mm-hmm. I don't think there was this one really clear. Yeah, like no, this is we really intentionally try and craft all our videos so that they are capable of fitting within many yeah. views on most topics. <laughs> but people listen through six hours of us talking. That's true. Yeah, yeah, and they come away going, "Oh, this is a view." How would you describe the view? Do you think? Oh well. The biblical view. (laughs) I'm I'm breaking my own rule of uh, not being humble right now. (laughs) You know, I I was introduced to all of this in a class that I first took in college, Mm -hmm. you know, on Christian eschatology. And so I learned all about the history of views on the millennium and this thousand years of Jesus reigning and what that refers to, tribulation, rapture, final judgment, all that. So there's views on all of those things. Yes. And so I read all those books and had to figure out position papers and all that kind of thing. And then, um, and then I took a, even another class, on, a graduate-level class, on the same topic when I got to seminary. But over the years, as I've gone on and just read the Bible, the Bible doesn't fit cleanly into any of these systems. There yeah. are like some pieces that seem to point towards some of those views and some that don't. So uh, there's actually very little of what we talked about in those Day of the Lord podcasts that you can't find in almost all commentaries good commentaries that are engaging the prophetic literature, biblical narrative, the book of Revelation, apocalyptic stuff in the New Testament. Probably the one thing that I have developed a firm conviction about is the nature of nonviolence in Jesus's mission, which nobody disagrees about in terms of his ministry. Giving, yeah. you know, he, it was obviously an act of right. nonviolence. Uh, where Christians have differed is the role of divine violence in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and how that relates to Jesus's conquering or victory and then how that connects to the manner of the day of the Lord coming in the future. Yeah. And if that will involve more divine violence or divinely sanctioned violence, violence that Jesus commits, or if he'll continue on his nonviolent trajectory. Okay. So I think that's yeah. a big shift for many people. Yes. Potentially. And yeah. that might be one of the things they mean. With your view, yeah, um, yeah. That, so the nature of violence and nature of violence. Maybe uh, so. Yeah, whatever. Um, I don't know, Matthew, what specific things you're talking about in eschatology, but I think in terms of how people's views of if there is some final culminating period of terrible war and tribulation or the rapture and how any of that fits in, um, what we're doing in the video could fit into any number of those views. You just plug it in, but we just wanted it to stay really close to the biblical narrative and how the themes develop there. Yeah. 
I think violence sets it apart. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I'd say the other thing was um, this idea of the archetypal view of Babylon. Yeah. Um, which, again, good, read good Old Testament scholarship of all stripes on the prophetic literature and on the Revelation. And everybody agrees, yeah, that's what's happening. Hmm. Babylon is an image of all of the bad guys, <laughs> yeah. including Israel through the Old Testament up to that point, and that it's John's. The, the disagreement in modern views would be about the book of Revelation is if, if it refers to one specific world empire yeah. that is to come, that specifically w- the one that, that will, will be Babylon, that will be the reigning world empire when Jesus returns. Yeah. Or is it referring to more the, what we were trying to say is play out the archetypal view and it's meant for us to see Babylon in any and every human empire yeah. leading up to whatever regime happens to be in power when Jesus does return. So those would be two different views. But again, most of the classic things people really argue over, rapture and tribulation, could fit within any, any one of those. Yeah. Tim, John, thanks for all you guys do. This is Chris from Park City, Utah. Just trying to figure out the connection between how we see Jesus laying down his life and giving up his life in order to defeat evil in the New Testament, not giving into that promise of evil. But that same God in the Old Testament seems to bring plagues and one nation up against another nation where there's a battle or death. And that just seems like it kind of contradicts those two things and wondering if you could help me connect those dots. Thanks so much. Yeah, great question, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Totally. So this was, we got a number of questions, which are great, about the nature of violence. Mm -hmm. So nonviolence in Jesus' whole mission. Yeah. And then nonviolence, nonviolent confrontation. Jesus was anything but passive. (laughs) So uh, the word pacifist comes with too many other (laughs) things that aren't helpful for understanding Jesus's use of nonviolence. So Jesus was very confrontational, but he didn't, he clearly rejected violence as a a means of doing what he was doing. Hmm. And so then there are implications you have to think through in light of that backwards. Right. How how then do I think about divine violence? Because you can't get around the fact that there are many stories about people dying because they did something wrong, right? Uh, Yeah. Being turned to stone. Well, well, specifically just... Being like zapped down in the tabernacle. Yes. Like... Totally. People... Dying. People get worked over. Yeah. That's, be, it's violent. Because of divine violence. Divine violence. You haven't mentioned God yet. So the reason why these, all these stories are about a person or people who die yeah. because of actions attributed to God. Yeah. Divine violence. Divine So how violence. do we... So it's backwards. Yes. How does the divine portraits of divine violence in the first three quarters mm-hmm. <laughs> of the Christian Bible relate to Jesus who not only chooses, advocates, and demands nonviolence of his disciples, but actually says that how he is reflects the heart of God. Be merciful, as your heavenly Father is merciful, and gracious and kind to ungrateful and evil men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Compare that to show the Canaanites no mercy. <laughs> hmm. So is God merciful, or does God show his enemies no mercy? So there's a surface-level tension there, backwards, and then there's a, surf- there's a tension forwards, with how you think, which model do you think God's going to use to defeat evil at the culmination of history? The zap people. The yeah, the the old 
Old Testament divine violence model or the Jesus style? I'm not saying I'm even happy with that way of setting up the question, but that that's how it appears to us. Yes. And so typically people will either just say, well, sometimes God chops people's heads off as mm-hmm. an act of judgment and he's God. He can do that. Yeah. When Jesus came, he didn't take that route and God's well, merciful. And so God can do both. Well, I think this is where mm-hmm. the wrath, God's wrath coming on Jesus solves yes. a problem for people. So yeah, yeah, you yeah. have a God who needs to show his wrath yeah, and yeah. has been doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have Jesus who doesn't deserve it, takes it. And yeah. so now you have an opportunity. It's like this moment in time where you can opt out of God's wrath. Mm-hmm. But at one point in the future, that's going to be off the table again. Right. And then yeah. God's going to unleash more wrath. That's so right. that's, the, yeah. that's the logic. Yep, that's right. That is the logic. There's a handful of problems with that way of framing things. All of those problems have to do with the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the Bible itself poses some interesting challenges and doesn't quite say exactly that logical train of thought. Um, You have to take some things out of context and string them together into a new thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's like all um, of our attempts. Usually we're not intentionally trying to distort the Bible, but we often inevitably do so. We're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to make sense of it and tie things together. Yeah. So there's a few things. First, just in terms of the wrath, you won't find a sentence in the Bible that says God um, punished Jesus okay. or that Jesus suffered the wrath of God. Hmm. Um, you, you actually won't. And trust me, um, I promise you. <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> uh, I've both I have held that view for a long time until... I had read the Bible a lot, and then I intentionally went on the search, and I couldn't find that. Hmm. What you find is statements about God handing Jesus over. The Father hands over the Son. Uh, The most clear statement you get of not that, but that people often mistake it as the Father punishing the Son or God punishing Jesus, is in Romans 8, 1 through 4, where God says, where Paul, excuse me, Paul the Apostle says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful human existence, flesh, so that he could condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus. So what God is punishing is not Jesus. He's punishing evil hmm. in, in Jesus. How? And this all has to, all of this, at least as far as I can tell, goes back to that conversation we had in the podcast about consequence versus punishment. Mm-hmm. And this is really all it, what it's rooted, so much of this conversation is rooted in, is how does God punish people? What is the nature of God's wrath? And what you discover is that the, the Old Testament specifically has a really sophisticated way of talking about God's punishment. Mm-hmm. And most often, by most often, 8 out of 10, which is... 4 out of 5. 4 out of 5. <laughs> <laughs> and 16 out of 20. And 16 out of 20. Um, it's God handing people over. In fact, this is the phrase, to give over. In Hebrew, it's the verb natan, to give people over to the consequences of their decisions. Mm. So we talked about this in the podcast. What was God's punishment on Jerusalem for centuries of covenant unfaithfulness? Well, you read Ezekiel, and he's first-person speech in the mouth of God. I'm going to bring the sword after you. I'm going to strike you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to... Okay, So God's taking responsibility for what's about to happen to Jerusalem. But what is it that actually happened to Jerusalem? Like the divine lightning didn't strike it from the sky. Mm -hmm. Babylonian armies came. (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> and sacked the city. Took Why did they over. do that? Well, just read Ezekiel or read Jeremiah. King Zedekiah had made a treaty with the king of Babylon. He broke the treaty and was forming secret alliances with other nations, planning to rebel. King Nebuchadnezzar finds out about it, and he won't tolerate it. So what's the explanation for why Jerusalem fell? Well, in one sense, it was just really bad politics mm-hmm. on, the kings, yeah. on the part of the kings of Judah. But the prophets interpret that and speak on God's behalf and say, that is my punishment on you. That's me bringing a sword. It's me. What's that saying? You, the kings of Judah, rejecting the God of Israel and choosing to form military alliances with their neighbors instead of trusting that God would keep his people safe, Mm -hmm. even if it means the Babylonians come. But because they rejected trusting the God of Israel, he's giving them over to the consequences of their decisions. And the prophets don't view the consequence and punishment as separate things. They're the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's right through. It goes all the way back to the garden. Uh, The day that you eat of the tree, Adam and Eve, you will die. And then they eat of the tree. And what happens? I mean, everybody... Every reader going back to ancient times has noticed what doesn't happen. Yeah, they right? don't die. They, well, they don't die, but what ha- they do get banished. They forfeit their opportunity at the first partnership, business partnership, mm-hmm. and they're banished from the temple, the garden, which means they're now separated from close proximity to the author of life. And so they die eventually. Mm-hmm. And so the consequence is the punishment. Mm-hmm. And that goes just right through the whole Old Testament. And so when Paul says God handed Jesus over to death, who's perpetrating the violence against Jesus? Roman soldiers. Mm -hmm. And as a result of a rigged trial pulled by the leaders, Jewish leaders of Jerusalem. And so in one sense, it's human violence perpetrated against Jesus. But God takes responsibility for it. God handed Jesus over to die for our sins and to be raised for our justification, like Paul says in Romans 4. And so you see this pattern where God punishes evil by handing humans over to the consequences of their decision. And what's happening in the story of Jesus is God handing, the Father handing over his son, and Jesus not going unwillingly. (laughs) He Mm. hands himself over. Mm. Read the gospel narratives. Mm. He's like, I'm the one in power here. Remember what he he says to Pilate? Mm -hmm. You have no power over me (laughs) except what's been given to you, Mm -hmm. and I give over my life willingly. Mm. So Jesus hands himself over. Jesus becomes the place where God punishes sin by handing himself over to our evil. And to let our evil do its worst. By bearing the consequences. Yeah. And so Jesus is bearing the wrath of God. In his, and what's the wrath of God? It's handing a human over to the consequences of human evil. Except that human is God himself embodied in the person of Jesus. And so it's the, our, just our categories of separating out punishment and consequence don't help us understand what's going on in the cross. That's one layer of the question. Okay. Um, So when you go back and you look at the Old Testament narratives, portraits of divine violence, Mm -hmm. I went, I said eight out of 10, so four out of five, portrait of divine violence, God takes responsibility for it. But if you read the actual narrative of the violence, it's humans committing the violence. Hmm. In other words, it's very rare to find a narrative where in the narrative, God is directly doing the violence. Okay. 
And I, you, even the ones that you assume, you think for sure you already know uh, are God doing it. There's all, there's so interesting. There are little details there that show that the biblical authors themselves are deflecting or sh- trying to show you some deeper truth. For mm-hmm. example, in the the final plague in Egypt, mm-hmm. the death of the Killing firstborn. The firstborn yeah. So Pharaoh kills the firstborn of of the Israelites, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Yeah. Right. And Exodus 12, I'm going to strike the firstborn. Of um, the Egyptians down. All pass through, all strike. And then, but you read Exodus 12, you read the narrative, and then God says, I'm going to pass through, and I will give the destroyer to kill the firstborn. <laughs> the person who actually does the killing, or the entity doing the killing, is all of a sudden in Exodus 12, we'll just read it to you. It's so fascinating. The whole chapter, you're like, oh, God's going to kill babies. Yeah. He says it. It's gnarly. It's so gnarly. Yeah, Exodus 12, 12. I will go through the land. I will strike down the firstborn of Egypt. The blood will be assigned to you in the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. I, 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 I. Then you actually read um, the narrative, verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. He'll see the blood and won't allow or allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. Who's the destroyer? Exactly. <laughs> so, dude, are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. This is, Chris, this is way more than you asked for, <laughs> but it's really fascinating. Uh, the destroyer is an evil being who appears in a handful of narratives where you see plagues spreading, hmm. like the strike of a plague. Hmm. Uh, it happens in Second Samuel 24, where David does this military census of the people of Israel, and God's really angry at him. Hmm. And so God says, pick your punishment. And David chooses plague on his people Wow! <laughs> uh, instead of a, a number of his other punishments. And then God says, I'm going to bring this on you. And then who appears? An angelic being bringing destruction called hmm. the destroyer. Hmm. This one's even more fascinating. In the grumbling narratives in the wilderness where God opens like the earthquake that opens up and swallows up that guy Korah and his whole crew. The snakes that come and bite people and kill them. So you read the stories and it's just seems like direct divine violence. Mm-hmm. If you read in the New Testament, if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul's warning the Corinthians of uh, how they're taking the Lord's Supper in a way that's dishonoring the poor people in their midst. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, yeah, stop that. It's a really bad idea. You're going to shame poor people in the name of Jesus. Don't mess hmm. with Jesus. Don't mess with the poor in Jesus' name. He'll, he doesn't like that. And then he warns them. He says, don't be like the Israelites who grumbled. Don't grumble like some of the Israelites did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Hmm. And you will read the book of Numbers, all seven of the grumbling narratives, and the destroyer does not appear once. Hmm. So what Paul has done is he's developed, a th- based on the appearance of the destroyer, in the Exodus, in the Exodus story, he's formed a paradox, a, a method of interpreting divine violence, hmm. and where he sees God doing direct divine violence, he assumes that that divine violence was God giving people over to some destructive force hmm. that is the thing that killed them. Hmm. In this case, the plague. The destroyer refers to a plague in mo- almost all the cases where it occurs. Hmm. So modern Westerners, we think, oh well. It was just a plague happened, and then the biblical authors were like, that was God. Right. <laughs> um, but that's so foreign to the biblical mindset. This is a deep rabbit hole. This is great. 
Okay. Keep All going. Right. Okay. So the flood story. Let's take the flood story, for yeah. example. There's direct divine, divine violence. You've totally. Ever Just seen it taking before. over the whole world. Yes. Just okay. So God says the heart of evil is only evil. All, the heart, the heart of, of humanity is only evil all the time. I'm done. I regret making humanity on the earth. Hmm. This is the introduction mm-hmm. to the flood story um, in Genesis 6. And so uh, I'm going to wipe the earth clean. Yeah. So, okay. So God takes responsibility. In all these cases, God takes responsibility. Okay. But that, what I'm saying Re- is... And when you say that, he, he's not saying, I'm the one who is at fault, not that kind of responsibility. He's saying responsibility in that I'm going to mm-hmm. solve this. I'm going to be the one that that brings mm. uh, a conclusion mm. to this. Well, or, uh, yeah, by take. I mean, I like. Yeah, the what phrase, do you mean when you say take responsibility? Well, what I like about the phrase "God's taking responsibility" is in these narratives, the face value reading is God saying, "I'm doing this. Yeah, I'm responsible. I'm going to do this." But then you read I'm the story, for this. and it's God. I'm not responsible for how the humans were acting. I'm going to be responsible for what I'm going to do. You're throwing just, up your hands in okay. the air. Yeah, I am. I'm just, just be patient with me, <laughs> <laughs> right? Be patient. So, w- for God to take responsibility, one, just read the narratives where God judges people. Okay. Four times out of five, eight out of ten, sixteen out of twenty, it's God handing people over to what humans would see as just the natural. Let's not use that word. At just the consequences, not natural consequences. Just the consequences of. A bad, a bad, stupid, selfish, sinful decision. Yeah. Cause effect. Cause and effect. And God takes responsibility for that and says... That's me. That's, I did that yeah. to you. So we're into the worldview of Proverbs here, of the moral universe and cause and effect. Right, okay. So, on. so there's that. Then there are other narratives where it doesn't seem like there's any human agent. There's no Babylonians sacking Jerusalem yeah. that God can say, I did it. And you read it's about so the Exodus, but then there, when you think that it's God directly, there's there's these little textual details that say the destroyer. It's, it's some kind of malevolent, yeah, something, something that gnarly is called by a phrase you think refers to some sort of evil spiritual being, but then in other narratives the destroyer is identified, like in Second Samuel twenty four, as a plague, and therefore when Paul reads other narratives okay. of divine violence, yeah. he inserts some other agent into the story. He just assumes that must be what happen- yep. happens. That's right. Uh, that's very important for what I'm saying right now, is you can see the biblical uh, Paul doing this. He's making an interpretive Yeah, but what move. does Paul know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He inserts a some other agent doing the actual violence to in, people. In numbers. In the num- in the wilderness narratives and numbers, so all the way back to the flood, which is a different kind of example, the violence and the undoing, the undoing, the cause of the death, right, of humans in the flood, it's not lightning, it's the windows of the heavens yeah. starts raining, the, ra- the rakia, yep, and the the springs of the deep burst. Now this goes all the way back to Genesis one. And you can go through the way the, the, the description of the rain starts, and it's, it's item by item a disintegration of what God mm. brought into order in Genesis 1. Mm. Sky, land, sea, the types of creatures, 
that Noah brings on the boat, mm-hmm. the types of creatures that then die. And this is not just me. This is people have known this for a very long time. The creation, the flood story is, is depicted in the language of the undoing of the order that God brought about. Mm-hmm. It's decreation. Mm-hmm. So God is giving the earth over to back to tohu vavohu in mm. chaos. Mm. And so even in that example, it's God. So chaos is always crashing yeah. at your doors, just sure. like the ocean waves. Yeah. Second That's, law of thermodynamics. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We could translate it into other categories, but like... Let's, why is the sea identified with chaos? Well, man, you go to the beach. Oh, it's coming it's at you. It's just like, it's always coming at you, but it's God set a boundary for it, like mm. he says in Job, and mm. says, here your proud waves halt, no more. Hmm. So the land is the place of order, mm-hmm. except the desert, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so the flood is portrayed in this ancient, you know, it's, it's an di- ancient way of viewing the world, that the flood is God... Letting the waters take yeah, over. Yeah, releasing his... Imposition of order onto creation and giving creation back over to the forces of chaos that are always crashing at the beach. Yeah. Okay. It's a a giving over. It's a giving. It's another handing over. In Genesis 1, it's him imposing order. Yep. Yep. And that he has to sustain that. Correct. And then in Genesis 6, it's him letting go of that. Correct. And giving it over. Yeah. This is why in so many of the creation poems, later poems, like Psalm 74, where God creating is depicted in his battle of crushing the seven-headed dragon, mm-hmm. Psalm 74. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also not just creation, it's creation and order, because he says sun and moon, stars and seasons. Mm-hmm. So God, the fact that the world is ordered rather than disordered is because of God's constant sustaining presence. But the moment that he hides his face, which is a common phrase, Old Testament phrase for judgment, and hands people over or hands creation over, and withdraws his presence, mm-hmm. um, chaos descends. So whether that's the flood, whether that's plague, or whether that's malevolent evil forces, <laughs> or whether that's giving evil humans over to other evil humans. And so all of this is one thing in the mind of the biblical authors. Yeah. And so when God hands Jesus over, um, this is God handing himself over <laughs> to our evil and simultaneously taking responsibility for it at the same time. That's why I like the phrase taking responsibility, because on the cross, God takes responsibility for human evil. Hmm. He allows it to be to to determine his death sentence. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's a paradox. Get your mind around this. But it's God takes responsibility and takes upon himself the death sentence. <laughs> so if he would have handed over humanity in, yeah. the, in this way we've been talking, it would have been death for yes. humans. Yes. And so... Yeah, that's page three of Genesis, right? Yeah, you'll die. Yeah. Jesus' d- d- Jesus' death on the cross is God handing himself over. Instead of handing us over... Correct. He said, I'll hand myself over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will take that. Yeah. My, myself being the Trinitarian self, right? Yeah. <laughs> the Father handing over the Son, and the Son's em- empowered by the Spirit to do so, and that kind of thing. But... And yes. that will be my my ju- wrath, my, my wrath, my judgment, and yes. my judgment, and that is me mm-hmm. defeating mm. evil. That's well, a separate thing. Well, I think we where we landed was we like the phrase "robbing evil of its power." Yeah, but man, the New Testament authors don't mix their words. They call it a victory. Yeah, a decisive victory. Yeah, remember Paul? He 
made a public humiliation mm-hmm. spectacle mm-hmm. of the powers of evil, mm-hmm. human and spiritual, when he triumphed over them on the cross. Yeah. Or the whole Revelation, book of Revelation, is about the victory of the Lamb and the, the conquering of the Lamb and his followers through dying. Mm. So the New Testament authors describe it as God's day of the Lord victory, but stage one that will be completed when Jesus returns. And so this is why, ultimately, (laughs) uh, I think the readings of the final day of the Lord and the culmination of history that um, understand Jesus coming back and exerting divine violence, chopping people's heads off and this kind of thing, in my mind, it's just, it's like whiplash at the end, <laughs> at the end of the story, because that is in no way consistent with how this the, has been how unfolding. The, this God has been portrayed. Because you've already been seeing, okay, humans have been uh, deserving of death yeah, and, and retribution, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, b- because we unleash as death a on each other. As yes. a consequence. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And... Mm-hmm. What you actually see is a lot of God being um, really generous in spite of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. even in like the mm-hmm. Cain and Abel story, like Cain yeah. kills his brother yeah. and then God mm-hmm. marks him and says... Yeah. But notice the punishment there is banishment. banishment. Yeah, God withdraws himself from Cain and his evil. Yeah. So there's still a consequence. Yep. But in spite of the consequences, you find God constantly trying to mm-hmm. like... Mm-hmm. You know, he's patient, slow to anger. Yes, yes. L- loving mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, he's, and ba- so, he's bearing people's sin. Yeah. <laughs> and so you yeah. see that, yeah. and then you get to Jesus, mm-hmm. and you see his mm-hmm. handing over in this now mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. remarkable and counterintuitive uh, way. And then that's tied to not only is he handing himself over... <clears throat> instead of handing us over, it's also tied to his victory over evil. Correct. Yeah. And that poses some interesting questions mm-hmm. because we still experience evil. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we've used the phrase robbing evil of its power. Yes. There was some sort of victory that happened. The, the victory is that death ultimately didn't maintain its hold on Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the cross isn't a victory in, without the empty tomb. Evil will not mm-hmm. be able to keep its hold over... Evil wasn't able to keep its hold over Jesus. Therefore, he is offered God's ultimate It's like the antidote. (laughs) It's like he came up with like the... The antidote, yeah. You know, like, you know, no one had a way to combat evil, Mm -hmm. right? Evil Mm -hmm. always won. Mm -hmm. Like evil's promise of power, the way that it snares you Mm -hmm. and then leads you to death, it's like Mm -hmm. this irreversible thing like a virus. Yes. And then Jesus comes and says, nope, not anymore. Yeah. It doesn't have to lead to death. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's then, a victory. And that's, yeah. That's, that's like victory. a geneticist celebrating yeah. that he just came up with a new yeah. antidote. Antidote. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good metaphor. To others. There's lots of, lots of good metaphors. I, sh- I should say, this is all on the top of my head because I recently had to give a teaching on divine violence in the Old Testament. So I, I have a... Sp- recent stack of books in my head. That's okay. why I can spell all of this. Yeah. All the time okay. Head. So <laughs> then you get, you say it's whiplash because you get mm. to mm-hmm. then a discussion about yeah. the future of creation mm-hmm. and humanity yeah. and how God's going to make things right. How he'll deal and confront evil once and for all, ultimately. 
evil and us. And us. And the, yes, that's right. Right? Well, this, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and the intertwining of us and, with and, evil. Correct. Because evil yeah. is crouching at our doors and wants to... Yes, devour us. Have, have, a, have his way with us. So It's whiplash because you're saying... If all along, even though God has been taking responsibility for our evil, even though um, he himself, in many of most of these narratives, isn't perpetrating it, he's handing people over mm-hmm. to the con- evil consequences and violence. Yeah. But God takes responsibility for it in, yes. these, in much of the Old Testament. That's the same pattern that you see displayed in the in Jesus is Jesus takes responsibility for the centuries of covenant rebellion of Israel. Jesus dies as a violent revolutionary against Rome when he himself wasn't. Wasn't. So he is a bearing and taking responsibility for uh, his people's evil and for human evil. And what is the result? He eats the consequences. <laughs> He's handed over to death. Mm. And that is God's wrath. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the biblical pattern of how God punishes, is handing people over. And, but he puts him, he hands himself So he over. did that with Jesus. Correct. But then the question becomes now yes. in the future. Correct, correct. When he still has to deal with yes. the Babylons we're creating mm-hmm. and um, the, you know, the systemic problems and also just people. Yeah. Why can't he hand over with like plagues, yeah. you know, and yeah. fire and brimstone yeah. Yeah. and those kind of things with the destroyer, mm-hmm. you know, why can't this be the way mm-hmm. it goes down Well, if, but, in um, the end of times? Yeah. Well, so the only real depictions we have are a couple apocalyptic type passages in the New Testament. Jesus offers one talking about the fall of Jerusalem in the Gospels. Paul in his letters to the Thessalonians, and then, of course, the book of Revelation. But once again, if you read slowly and in context, reading these apocalyptic texts the way they're designed to be read, which is connecting all this imagery as imagery, the divine judgment on Babylon in the book of Revelation is, we talked about this in the in the podcast, it's the 10 plagues put in a blender yeah. and with the volume turned up, which doesn't actually answer the question of, okay, well, what? Do these images refer to? Sure. <laughs> because on one level, locusts and plagues and, yeah. you know, so it's God handing creation back over to disorder. Mm-hmm. It's God handing creation over to its own evil. Yeah. To self-destruct. So that so can still, that will still happen in certain ways. And it, and it yeah, does today. It happens. It happens it's every day. all the time. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, and if you want to say that's, Violence, mm-hmm. divine violence. Right. Yeah. Then okay. Then divine violence is still happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's God allowing His creation to sink into chaos, chaos that's caused what we we would separate it out as modern Western people natural chaos. Yeah. Versus and human moral chaos. But the biblical authors viewed all as one pack, mm. intertwined package. One place that this really comes to a head, talking about violence, is in the Revelation. You have the image of Jesus riding in on a white horse, and he's he's got blood all over his robes. Mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. traditionally, you would think, okay, yeah, because Jesus is going to kick some butt. Yeah. And so obviously now he's bloody from battle. Yeah. But when we talked about that, mm-hmm. you made a point of that being um, his own blood. 
Yes. We actually have a good question from, from Robin Rempel yeah. uh, about that. Hi, John and Tim. I'm Robin Rempel, Haleen at the moment from North Carolina. Uh, my question is perhaps a bit picky, but surfaces a deeper underlying question about the literary structure of the Revelation. Several times in your video on the Revelation and also in your podcast on the Day of the Lord, you've made a point that in John's vision of Jesus as the high king sitting on a white horse in Revelation 19, the blood on his robe is his own. And that this vision segment is about Jesus's return. However, the reasons you give seem to me to be confusing. And I'm just wondering if somehow your hermeneutics are, are conflicted. Thanks. So she actually sent some more information on that question. So when she said your hermeneutics are conflicted, yeah. um, I think what she was referring to is how uh, the revelation it, in the way we talked about it wasn't this chronological sequence of events, but really the, the hinge for why that wouldn't be the blood of the people he was destroying mm. is because the battle hadn't started yet. So it mm. was appealing to chronology mm. when chronology wasn't that important in other parts of the revelation. So I think that's what she mm. meant by a conflicted hermeneutic. Yeah. But in general, I think there is a lot of pushback with that interpretation of it being Jesus' Jesus's blood. blood. Yeah, we got a couple of questions about that too. Yeah, so yeah. is this a bit of a stretch? Mm. It, it, yeah. Have other people interpreted it that way? Yeah, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I didn't make up the idea. I've started reading people who are way smarter than me and found like, oh man, there's so many really, really sharp biblical scholars present and past who... Uh, have argued for that. You actually can't start with that scene of Jesus riding in on the horse to make the full case for that. It actually, it's about the depiction of Jesus and his army as victorious as a theme that runs throughout the whole book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And so it goes all the way back to the letters to the seven churches where multiple of people in these churches are being persecuted. He mentions churches being put in prison. Mm -hmm. Some have died. Christians have died as martyrs. But yet every letter he talks about how that each of these communities can become overcomers or conquerors. To, to the one who overcomes, Jesus makes a promise of uh, vindication and stuff like that. So that raises the question of, well, oh, these persecuted religious minorities, but John is telling them that they can be the conquerors. Mm. It's like military language. Yeah. What does that mean? Right. And then in the next vision, uh, Revelation 4 and 5, Jesus is introduced as the conqueror. It's the same word as mm -hmm. the one who conquers. And it's really important before Jesus is introduced onto the scene, he hears Jesus being announced like a king entering a throne room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he hears and the elders in the, in the vision say is, behold, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David who is conquering, who, who has conquered. Mm -hmm. And so those are both Old Testament texts, Lion of Judah, Genesis 49, Root of David, Isaiah 11. And in both of those cases, it's God raising up the Messianic king as a violent conqueror. 
and destroyer of wicked people. Yeah. In Genesis, it's like the lion tears and slashes and bites off the bad guy's head. Yeah, lions are <laughs> brutal. Yeah, totally. So it's very important. This is the introductory scene of Jesus yeah. in, this, in the Here narrative Here he comes, arc. the lion. And um, so he's introduced as the lion and yeah. as the victorious, messianic, butt-kicking, kill-the-bad-guys Messiah of Isaiah 11. That's what John hears. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's the announcement made over the loudspeakers. And then when he looks, the one who walks through the door, what he sees is a lamb, a helpless lamb with its throat slit and dripping, covered in its own blood. Hmm. And that's Jesus throughout the whole rest of the vision of the revelation until the moment on the white horse is the first time Jesus is depicted as not the bloody lamb. So the, if you read through Revelation 4 and 5 all the way through to chapter 19 where he appears on the horse, every time Jesus is depicted or referred to as the, the, the slaughtered lamb. And so this image of the slaughtered lamb obviously is connected to Jesus' sacrificial death. Yes, that's right. And Yeah, it's a metaphor mm-hmm. talking about Jesus is the victorious messianic king that the prophets were talking about, the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 49, But his 11. victory didn't come from That's being right. this ferocious lion that Correct. could rip people apart. Yes. His victory came from being a, help, mm-hmm. a yeah. sacrificial lamb. Sacrificial lamb. And in so doing, they aren't contradicting the Old Testament. What they're doing is picking up another strand of Old Testament promise mm-hmm. that comes all the way back to Genesis 3 <clears throat> when God promised that some uh, a seed of the woman, a descendant of Eve, would come to crush the serpent. But his victory over this is Genesis three fifteen, this descendant's victory will happen by himself being struck by the serpent. Mm. And then that gets played out, especially in Isaiah's depiction of the suffering servant king. Yeah. So within the even the book of Isaiah, you've got Isaiah eleven, but kicking kill the bad guy's king. Yeah. But then later in the book of Isaiah you find out that that figure is going to be victorious by giving up his own life. So there's two ways to deal with that. Mm-hmm. The first way is to say there's two different modes. God's in warrior mode, and then he's in <laughs> sacrificial mode, and he's going to go back to warrior mode, Yeah. right? Yeah, sure. The mm-hmm. second way is mm-hmm. to say there's some strange interplay mm-hmm. between these two, Correct. which is the way God actually wages war mm-hmm. is through sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have both those portraits in the Old Testament. And what Jesus seems to have done is as read, read them in light of each other, but reinterpreted the divine violence as an image of conquering by sacrificial love and giving up his life. And if that's then your position, which is mm-hmm. that's what Jesus did. Mm-hmm then do you begin to reinterpret any divine violence as mm. that? Or is there still room well, for well, hold some butt kicking Let's just stick in the Jesus. revelation. Let's finish the thread. Let's finish. <laughs> from the lamb to the white horse. Okay. So from that scene where Jesus is called the slain lamb who conquers his enemies by dying for them. Mm-hmm. That's what that image means. Then from there in chapter 7, the army of the lamb is introduced. And the army of the Lamb is introduced as a crowd of people from all nations 
who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so obviously a, mi- yeah. a beautiful mixing of metaphors. They've become pure. It's impossible to do. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Try to make a robe white with blood. Yeah, totally. So, but symbolically, symbolically the point makes is the sense. blood using Leviticus purification mm-hmm. sacrifice imagery mm-hmm. of through the blood, they have become the, the pure ones. Yeah. And then later in Revelation 12, where the, it's the battle between the dragon and the army of the lamb. Uh-huh. This is such a great line um, in Revelation 12, 10 and 11. Our brethren, the army of the Lamb, overcomes the dragon because of the blood of the Lamb Mm -hmm. and because of their testimony because they didn't love their lives even unto death. So not only does the Lamb triumph and conquer by giving up his life, but the army of the Lamb conquers by the blood of the Lamb. Conquers the dragon. Conquers the dragon in Revelation 12 by the word of their testimony, speaking the truth of the gospel, the good mm-hmm. news that King Jesus yeah. died for his enemies. Which is kind of similar to the sword in the mouth. Ex- exactly. Yeah, that's where I'm going. Okay. And then uh, the, they overcome with the blood of the lamb, which is explained as they gave up their lives. So that then you come to so the So they right. conquered the dragon by mm-hmm. giving up their lives. Giving up their lives and by their words, mm-hmm. by proclaiming Jesus as the true king mm. before the dragon, even if the dragon kills them. We're dying just like our king died in an act of sacrificial witness mm. against the dragon and his violence. Yeah. And thereby, we conquer him. Mm. That's what it says. They conquered him mm. <laughs> through the blood of the lamb. So that lays – Those are, there's actually more clues to this puzzle, but those are the main ones. And when you get to Jesus, you're already prepared. Jesus on the white horse. Jesus on the white horse with blood on his robes. Mm-hmm. Um, and a sword in his mouth, you already know what these images mean. Blood on the robes is an image of... Purification. Of being the pure one Mm -hmm. who has died on behalf of the testimony or on the message. And so... But it's also pulling from that Isaiah Okay, yes, 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 okay. So there's kind of a dual thing going on there. So the other thing is in that... Okay, now we're in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse. Um, So Jesus is introduced. That paragraph is just a load of Old Testament hyperlinks. Um, <laughs> uh, it's really, it's remarkable. Um, I'll, here, I'll just do it because okay. you get the effect. So it's it. Revelation 19.11. So I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one who sat on it is called faithful and true. That phrase faithful and true is a play on some things going on in Hebrew in Isaiah 62. Okay. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. That's a quotation from Psalm 96. His eyes are a flame of fire. That's a quotation from Daniel 11. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. That's certainly allusion back to the divine name mm. that is unknown, but then God reveals as known to mm. Moses in the burning bush. Okay. And then he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And that's an image from Isaiah 63. Of, one, of trotting the wine press alone. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So Isaiah 63, we actually we talked about it yes. in the day, earlier in the podcast. Yes. It's an image of God comes on the day of vengeance, mm-hmm. the day of the Lord, stomping grapes yeah. as an image of him stomping his enemies. Yeah, destroying the nations. And it's the stomping, the treading of the wine press of his wrath that spatters their juice yeah. all over his garments. It's right. the stomping that makes the robe bloody. Yeah. And what John has done is he separated the st- uh, stomping 
from the how you get bloody. <laughs> right. And so he introduces Jesus as bloody before he mentions the treading the winepress of the wrath. In Isaiah 63, they're mm -hmm. closely connected. In this scene, Jesus is bloody before any stomping begins. Before the battle begins. Before the battle begins. Yeah, he's still, again, he's still showing now, up. Does it, how, how important is that? That's, I think, Robin's question is, mm -hmm. is, is the chronology that important? Um, no, I'm not talking about chronology. I'm talking about the sequence of the sentences in okay. this paragraph. So John has hyperlinked to a passage in Isaiah 63 where the sequence is God comes stomping mm -hmm. on his enemies, okay. and that's what makes him bloody. Yes. And John has disturbed that sequence okay. in Isaiah 63 and reversed it. So he comes bloody so Jesus because he's going to, but he's going to stomp. Yes, which redefines what it means for Jesus to stomp. And that's what the whole revelation has been doing. Hmm. Stomping is another image for conquering. How does Jesus conquer? How does Jesus wage war? How does Jesus gain victory over his enemies? How does hmm. Jesus confront evil? He does it with a sword coming out of his <clears throat> mouth, which we already are prepared for that. It's the testimony. Mm. It's the gospel that exposes the truth about yeah. Babylon mm -hmm. and says no more. So one. And then two, the means of his conquering is the robe dipped in blood, namely the slain lamb who gives up his life, the saints who don't love their lives even unto death. Got it. So John, the, rev the revelation is very intentional in how John introduces key words and images like blood and conquering. Mm -hmm. And then you watch him. He leaves a trail of breadcrumbs. All you do is read through the book quickly mm -hmm. with a highlighter, mm -hmm. just looking for one or two key words at a time. Mm -hmm. And you'll see he's left these trails mm -hmm. of themes that he develops throughout the book one by one. And so this image of conquering by blood by giving up your life is a key one. And it comes to its culmination right here. So my point would be, yes, he's reading Isaiah 63, but he has fundamentally transformed the images in light of his depiction of Jesus as the wounded victor. Okay. So, and I know, and I'm totally not the only person who, <laughs> who reads the Revelation this way. Uh, Leon Morris, classic, down the line, orthodox, Protestant commentator. Hmm. He makes a whole case of this. Ian Boxall, lot many commentators. Yeah. Some don't. Some think that you should import the divine stomping from Isaiah 63, and that overrides. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. the, uh, but in my mind, you can't just say he's quoting Old Testament. You have to ask, what's he doing with these Old Testament images? And I think you can make the best case that accounts for the whole book is that he's transformed the divine violence of the Old Testament images in light of the cross. Okay, so we've talked about this for a while now, but let me try to summarize <laughs> Please do. the whole violence thing. Yeah, um, I came with this construct of saying, hey, look, isn't it as simple as God can have divine violence against mm -hmm. people, and he has in the Old Testament. That's kind of mm -hmm. his typical mode. Mm -hmm. That's like default mode. <laughs> and But here comes Jesus. And it's this kind of like one time only special mm -hmm. of get out of God's divine wrath mm. because his wrath was put on Jesus instead. Mm. So there's a little opportunity for switch. But that's that's not going to be on sale forever, <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, sheesh. <laughs> and the day of the oh. Lord is coming. And Got it. if you haven't signed up, you're going to get mm -hmm. back to what was the yeah. default mode, yeah, which is the butt-kicking Jesus. Getting stomped. And this time by Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that so that there's that construct. Mm-hmm. When you have that construct, you can you get to a passage like Jesus bloodied with battle that comes from an image of God stomping mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. wine press, and you can see like, okay, cool, yeah, this is this is Jesus mm-hmm. kicking no, butt. N- no more Mister Nice Guy. No more Mister Nice Guy. Yeah. Okay. So what you've done is you said, okay, let's let's start again. First of all, divine justice, mm. divine violence, mm. I should say, in the Old Testament, it's it's actually pretty nuanced. Yes. Four yeah. out of five times, <laughs> eight out of 10, 16 out of 20, 32 out of 40 times. <laughs> um, it's not actually God mm. doing it. Mm. It's it's nature. It's natural consequences. Mm-hmm. Just consequences. It's consequences. consequences. Yeah. For which then, God for which God takes responsibility. Yeah, that's the phrase you've been using. Takes yes. responsibility. Yeah. He's like, hey, no, no, I was behind that, even mm-hmm. though it was betrayed as just a normal consequence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you brought out the Exodus passage that also well, and mm. so even on those times where you're like, well, this is obviously God. Mm-hmm. Those one out of five times, mm-hmm. even those are often. Some other agent of the violence is introduced. Yeah. Even the if destroyer. That's so interesting. Mysterious agent. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and remember, we're not making this up. Um, Paul the Apostle was tracking with this trend. Yes. And he... And he, he himself inserted... Imported the destroyer into the numbers. Into other stories where the destroyer doesn't appear. Yeah. Which means that he's worked out a theology that even when God does direct divine violence... It's still him handing people over to something other. And that becomes the key term yeah. is handing over. Yeah. And I love that idea of God is sustaining the creative, created order. Mm-hmm. And he's, he is actually making things. He's mm. giving order he is, by his own power. Yeah, 24-7 imposing order. Yeah. So the and creation so, doesn't implode. And so the yeah. consequence is him just saying, I'm going to let... Unfold what will naturally unfold because of the disorder you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to create more order out of your disorder. I'm just going to let the disorder be. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. you want tohu vavohu? Yeah. <laughs> you want formless and void? Yeah. Then have it. Yeah. Then Jesus comes. There's this weird thing where. Well, sorry, but I back up and say, but also within the Old Testament itself, there is another strand, another theme of that the real victory over evil at its root, Genesis 3, 15, mm. is going to come by a wounded victor. That's true. So you have within the Old Testament multiple strands or ideas about how so it's evil there. gets ultimately defeated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay, so here's my question then. Well, and then to finish the loop, yeah. Jesus comes, he's handed over on our behalf. Mm-hmm. That is God's wrath, Mm -hmm. Jesus taking the consequence Mm -hmm. that should have been ours. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes... But that consequence is humans doing violence to Jesus. Yeah. Mm. So it's still human violence perpetrating the evil. Yeah. Is God's wrath. Mm -hmm. And God takes responsibility. Jesus takes responsibility. He, He intentionally puts himself in the place of a violent Jewish rebel. Yeah. against Rome, to take responsibility <clears throat> for Israel's violence and all humanity's violence. And the followers of Jesus then, empowered by the Spirit, are called to live this type of life mm-hmm. of 
yeah. of surrender, mm-hmm. of sacrificial love. Mm-hmm. And, and then where it becomes really clear is in the Revelation, John is trying to make a point is like, this is how you have victory. This is how yeah. you conquer. It seems completely backwards, but yeah. this is the message. This is how you conquer. Yeah, and and he's not the only one who did that. Think of some famous lines in Paul's letters, like Ephesians. <clears throat> First of all, our enemies are not flesh. There is a war on. There is a conflict mm-hmm. against evil, but the enemy is not human. It's a darker mm. spiritual evil that makes humans commit violence and evil against each other. And therefore, the armor and the sword... And the shield of Christian warfare is truth, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Salvation, the scriptures, mm-hmm. the armor of God yeah. is another way of both of those themes of the, the, uh, the enemy isn't human, so don't kill humans, the thinking that you're solving the real problem. Mm-hmm. And two, the armor and weapons are all metaphorical for Christian virtues or for the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> so Paul, the apostle, is totally on the same wavelength as the author of the Revelation. This John, uh, who wrote the Revelation, had a more creative imagination. Yeah. <laughs> with his really, uh, symbolic imagery. Yeah. That he mostly derived from, from, the, Old from the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. Okay. With all that in mind, <laughs> does God still kick some butt sometimes? <laughs> right? The sheep and the goats. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, or the wheat and the tares. It's like... God's going to come mm. and he's going to say you guys are you guys are cool. Yeah. You guys are not cool. Yeah. And the and the images you get are of weeping. What so the sheep and the goats it's like Well, uh, both of those just have to do with separation. There's coming a moment when God will separate out evil from his creation. But it's pretty violent and um like, uh, th- there's a variety of images um, that Jesus uses yeah. in his own teachings. There's a variety of images that Paul uses and that's used in the Revelation. And, the, and many of them conflict on the literal level, you mm-hmm. know, fire and dar- or darkness. Right. Well, which one is it? Yeah. Well, Dark that's fire. not that's the wrong question because they both are, are meaningful depictions of what happens to evil if it is contained and left to itself eternally. Yeah. So darkness is an image of isolation and blindness. Fire is an image of obviously self-destruction. Yeah. And de- decomposition. Mm. <laughs> Disintegration. Yeah. Obviously weeping and gnashing of teeth is are images of resentment and mm, or grief. And sorrow. Yeah. Grief. And then containment <laughs> or separation, the image of being outside the city. Mm-hmm. And then Paul's image in First Thessalonians 1 is away from the face of the Lord, mm. it is, which actually is a phrase that he borrowed from Isaiah chapter 2. Um, but it's being, it's the garden banishment image. Mm. It's if I don't want to be a part of God's creation where the key value is love for the other is more important than myself which is what Jesus embodied. Mm -hmm. If I don't want to be a part of a world where the economy of relationships and all other relations, all relationships on all levels is the other is more important than me. (laughs) (laughs) If I don't want to live in that world and the high demand that it places on me, then God won't allow anyone or anything to spoil that world that he's going to create. Hmm. And so he contains evil 
and the only references to its ultimate destiny and those who choose it are these images that we just we just surveyed. I don't need anything more than those images personally to make you want to yeah, not be Yeah, I I don't need any more information. I don't want to know. <laughs> That's not my responsibility. Yeah. My responsibility is to love my neighbor. Yeah. And not kill people thinking that I'm accomplishing something, right? Yeah. Something that's actually going to solve the real problems of the human condition. So one thing you can <clears throat> say then from this construct that you're saying, which you're calling uh, biblical. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 and it's, again, it's not just mine. It's me reading lots yeah, yeah, yeah. of lots of other people. Yeah. But it, it seems to me uh, it's more consistent with what I see going on in the Bible right. than the first contracts, oh, yes. construct you described. You've made a very good case. <laughs> it seems like... What the Bible is saying about how God is going to deal mm-hmm. with evil, mm-hmm. the problem of evil, mm-hmm. and in us, but also in the created order, is to conquer it through sacrifice. Yeah. And that, it just boggles the mind because, okay, that worked mm-hmm. maybe at one point, and maybe that'll work for me, mm-hmm. but that can't work on a universal scale. Yeah. Like, you're not going to change the whole world that way. Yeah. Don't don't you have to come and finally just impose some like yes. divine yeah. uh, biceps? You know, like <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not about being passive. Passivism. Jesus was anything but passive. Yeah. <clears throat> but the means of his confrontation was enemy love. Yeah. And self sacrifice. And so, as far as like what this ultimately refers to, how God deals with and contains and separates out evil and mm-hmm. those who choose it. To me, it's just, it's so fundamentally inconsistent with who Jesus is, not just was, but who he is and continues to be. As everything I can see in the New Testament, I, can, I can't see um, one text that points me um, in the direction of God chopping people's heads off yeah. at the end of days. I just, that's so, to me, fundamentally inconsistent with everything that Jesus reveals about God's ultimate character. The real but challenge he is, won't deal with evil, and he will give you what you want. Yeah, he will deal with evil. Or he won't put up with evil. He won't put up with evil. Yeah, I'm not saying that it's all going to be rosy and yeah. we're all going to dance with daisies. He's with, not like, it's okay. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah, for God to just say, it's fine. Yeah. Let's just start over. Like a pansy. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that itself... He isn't a, an enabler. C- correct, yeah. That would be a horrible overlooking of the train wreck of human evil. So what it shows is that we as humans, we're like trained. Our bodies are rigged to fight. You know what I mean? Right. I think about this all the time. Oh, yeah, I've got young boys. Totally, yeah. We both have little boys. It's very clear watching like the aggression that's just in their bodies. And then when I think about moments, you know, the things I think about as I go to sleep, my fears and so on of like somebody attacking my kids or something like you know those mm-hmm. little bad dream scenarios that, mm-hmm. that you you make up you don't they don't happen to you you make them in your mind yeah. and then you're like oh why did i do that but yeah and then i end up in these little imaginative scenarios where i'm like fighting people <laughs> to protect my family mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. so our imaginations are captive to that framework yeah and it's so difficult for us to think about how God could confront and remove and deal with evil and people who choose evil in a way that doesn't involve violence. 
Like, we just don't right. even know what that scenario could look like. But it seems to me that's the whole point of the cross, is that it broke yeah. open a whole new way of everything, especially yeah. with how God confronts evil. Well, to do that successfully would require true power. Mm. To be able to be vulnerable but still conquer yes. means you're really powerful, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, huh. Mm. You have a different kind of power mm -hmm. that is more powerful than mm. picking a fight. Because by nature, being vulnerable means you're going to get destroyed mm. and that then that's it. Yeah. But if being vulnerable and sacrificial mm. means, yeah, you might get worked over but you mm -hmm. will actually conquer in the end yes that means there's a there's a deeper power I, at work. yes yeah yeah and and that's why I think the apostles in the New Testament don't abandon military language because mm. Paul it's... they use the language of conquer yeah. fight battle mm -hmm. armor because it is weapons yes it requires an enormous amount of Activism. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like if you think about somewhat like a sword fight and mm. if one guy is trying to kill the other guy mm. and the other guy mm. is trying to Whoa. fight him, but, fight not, him, kill but him. not kill him, Whoa. who's got the harder job? Whoa. That's a really good. Uh... Yeah. You know, um, there's a, an author, a theologian with a recent book out on divine violence in the Bible and mm -hmm. Jesus. And name, his name's Greg Boyd. He has a chapter called Divine Aikido. Oh. Um, and Aikido is this ancient martial art yeah. where the whole point, yes. it's entirely defensive. Self -defense. Yeah, self -defense. But, but what you do, it's about learning how to redirect the momentum and energy mm. coming at you yeah. aggressively uh -huh. and disarm it. Yeah. By turning that momentum back on them, yeah, to, you know, so you somehow they're running at you. You yeah. find a way to leverage it so that their energy flips them upside down with you on top, <laughs> and then they're trapped in their own. And the purpose isn't yes. then to pound on their face. Yeah, it's to like to immobilize them. It's to make it so the fight's over. So the fight's over. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really love that metaphor, divine act, the cross, the crucifixion as mm. divine aikido. That's yeah. Greg Boyd's phrase, not aikido. Mine. Aikido. It's a jiu-jitsu move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jesus putting you in a oh, sleeper hold. Oh, is it hold. a move? It's not a martial <clears throat> art. It's a move? Oh, no. Oh. Jiu-jitsu is a, probably another form. Yeah. But that's when, when someone does something mm. so like a mm. really crafty mm. statement or something that just kind of disarms you or like just, uh, yeah, just yeah, yeah. wins mm -hmm. with one like mm -hmm. clean swoop. People tend to say like, "Whoa, that was like some verbal jujitsu." Yeah, you know, that's like, right. Yeah, re a redirecting. But I, yeah, your way of putting that was really clicked my imagination. Right. Yeah. Of, in a sword fight, who has a harder job? Who has a harder job? The one trying to Which chop one's... off a head, or the one trying to win, but not killing the opponent? Yeah. Which one's more of a battle? Which one requires more creativity? Yeah. More power over your muscles and your movements. Mm -hmm. Wow. It was really interesting. My so my son's six, and he watches a lot of cartoons. And um, you know, there's always good guys and bad guys mm -hmm. in cartoons. We were in the car the other day, and he goes, "We're talking about good guys and bad guys." And he goes, "You know the best way to beat a bad guy?" And I'm I'm like ready for like mm. flamethrowers or whatever. And I go, "What?" And he goes, "Making them a good guy." Whoa! And I was like, "Whoa, dude!" He came up with that. Yeah. 
That's awesome. It came from like one of the shows. I don't know what oh, show. Oh, I see. Like sure, they sure, made sure. one of the bad guys a good guy. Yeah, got it. And got somehow it. for him, I think we've yeah. talked about this a little bit before. Yep, yep. But for him, he just connected the dots. He was like, "That's mm. the most. That's the mm. best way." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the gospel." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. While we were enemies, mm-hmm. and God, yes, died for us. Yeah, God's own love is demonstrated in this. While we were sinners. The Messiah died for us. That's exactly right. I've had this conversation many times, both in classroom discussions, working through the Bible, and you get to these portraits of divine violence. And there's a strand of American culture that's extremely aggressive and violent and get the bad guy and drop bombs and kill him, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But then there's also this real popular type of nonviolence, mm-hmm. you know, that that's out there, even in pop culture, and that that approach is the morally superior way mm-hmm. or more noble. And so, of course, like, we're, tri- we're tri- children of our culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, I'm trying the best I can to not let that drive what I see in the Bible. Mm. And so all this everything that we just went through, to me, comes from a face value just simple look at the text of the Bible in all of its details. Don't leave out the de- like look at the details and mm. what you'll find is a lot of nuance when it comes to violence. And ultimately, I I think what you discover is this theme that breaks our categories that God's way of winning is by divine aikido. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so any anyhow, I uh, we might be wrong about this. I don't think I don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, it certainly invites more conversation. It's things are not as simple as many people think. Okay, we've been <laughs> rambling, uh, but we're supposed to be answering people's questions. <laughs> but actually, we have been. As I'm looking yeah. over these questions, we've touched on we've almost, touched on almost the of ideas all. raised by almost every question yeah. people sent to us. There's just a couple other more detailed ones that we'll hit on before we close. So there's one by Shaylee Taylor, and she wrote, I've been listening to the podcasts on the day of the Lord and was wondering about Jesus's teachings in Matthew 24. Mm-hmm. What is he referring to here? I just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Is he talking about a singular event when he returns? Mm-hmm. And what does he mean about people disappearing? <laughs> <laughs> so Matthew 24. Two men walking in the field. <laughs> One right? disappears. Is that Larry Norman? Gosh. Anyway. All right. I wish we'd all yes. be. If you don't know what we're singing. I don't know why I'm singing with the twang. It's to a 1970s Christian folk song about uh, the rapture. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, a, I was going to say traditional, but mm. it's not traditional. It's a modern way of... Yeah. Interpreting Matthew twenty four. Yeah, it's the way that it's a yeah idea that some Christians have embraced. Matthew twenty four is Jesus talking yes. about the fall of Rome or, and the day of the Lord. Jerusalem. Jer- I mean Jerusalem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So Matthew twenty four, uh, Jesus' disciples come up to him. He's already pulled this stunt in the temple of clearing the money changers. His symbolic, prophetic protest and announcement of that the temple would be destroyed. Yeah. So he's already done it symbolically, and it got him into a heap of trouble. And then they were, he's walking outside of the temple complex, and the disciples say, wow, look at the nice buildings, Jesus. And he's, he kills the buzz of the party <laughs> of celebrating how awesome the temple looks. Mm-hmm. And he says, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another yeah. that won't be torn down. 
And so then they go to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples in Matthew ask two questions, since the question was about Matthew. They ask, tell us, when will these things happen? Yeah. When's the temple going to get destroyed? Exactly. So what they're asking is what he just talked about. Yeah. When is the temple? I would want to know. The temple's going to be destroyed? It's yeah. the center of everything. Is that like next week? Yeah. Is that going to be in a couple yes. of years? And then the second related question is, what and what is the sign of your presence or your coming and the conclusion of the age? So there's two questions, but mm. that in their minds are totally Connected. related. The fall of Jerusalem and... Must be the end of the age. The end of the age. And we're back in the same territory as with the prophets and the fall of Babylon. Why did Isaiah depict the fall of Babylon in the language very similarly, almost indistinguishable from the end of the age? Yeah. So the, Matthew 24 fits the same pattern that we've been talking about here. In Jesus' response, he goes on to talk about what's going to be leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, which... Uh, is going to happen, you know, 35-plus years from uh, Jesus mm-hmm. having this conversation. So he talks about there's going to be lots of wars, famines, earthquakes, and av- namely an average day <laughs> on planet Earth. Average year. An average year, yeah. Um, there's going to be lots of false leaders, false messiahs. That's a whole rabbit trail. But in other words, people who will come claiming to be the king from the line of David who's mm. going to kick the enemy's butt and yeah. save us from Rome. Mm. And there were those figures. Mm. That's, they, they're the ones who started the, <laughs> started the war <laughs> against Rome in the 60s in mm. 30 years from Jesus saying these words. Then he talks about how when you see um, Jerusalem attacked by the Romans, and the phrase he uses to describe it is from Does he Daniel. say by the Romans? He, what he says is when you see the abomination of desolations oh, right. and standing in the holy place, which in both Daniel and in the passages in uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah it's referring to the Assyrian king. The Assyrian king coming, the Assyrian to, king Jerusalem. coming to Jerusalem. Uh, and then after that, the Babylonian king and his armies coming to destroy and defile Jerusalem and the temple. For Jesus, he's picking up on this motif, talking about the marching of Gentile soldiers into the temple to destroy it. And we know that that's what he meant. What's fascinating, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, has a parallel to the speech of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And at precisely this point, he takes out the abomination of desolation Uh and replaces it with an image his readers could understand more easily. Right. And he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, (laughs) you'll know that its desolation is near. Okay. So there you go. So he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, But then he goes on to start using apocalyptic imagery from the prophets about it. So great tribulation like the world's never seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, It sounds like the end of the world. It sounds like the end of the world, but it's doing exactly the way Isaiah envisioned Babylon. Which if you had listened to the previous Mm -hmm. six hours of conversation, especially towards the beginning, Mm -hmm. you talked about the mountain range. Correct. That's right. And so looking straight on, Mm -hmm. uh, not straight on, from the side... It's hard to distinguish each hill uh, cascading upwards. Yeah, that's looking straight on. Looking straight on towards the mountain with the foothills, with the foothills in the foreground. Sh- right in front of you. It just looks like one long string hills yeah. up to the tallest one. And that's how it feels when you're reading these that's prophetic... That's That's right. Yeah. But if you look at the course of history, 
obviously. Which <laughs> which so is, is so the other vantage point. Is the other vantage point. Jesus, looking back, could tell the fall of Babylon, you know, in 539 BC wasn't the end of the world, mm-hmm. but it was one step. It was a manifestation of the day of the Lord. Yeah. Against the ultimate Babylon, which is why, right? Go back to Matthew 24. Right after this, he quotes from Isaiah 13. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be, this is a quote, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky. He's quoting from Isaiah 13's depiction of the fall of Babylon, and he's applying those words to the fall of Jerusalem, Hmm. but which again goes to show he believes that Jerusalem has become, he's converted to become Babylon. Yeah. And so what he's predicting is the fall of another Babylon. Israel become Babylon, which isn't the first time Israel's become Babylon. So that goes on. So her question, is he talking about a singular event mm-hmm. when he returns? Mm-hmm. How would you answer that question then? Mm, I'd say he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Which is a singular event. Singular event within the framework with, with apocalyptic Babylon prophetic yeah. language. But because when he gets down to a certain point, he says truly in verse 34, he says, this generation won't pass away until all these things take place. Right. So he just says it to the guys standing, you guys are going to see this in your lifetime. Yeah. He says it. Right. And then I think in verse 36, with a uh, large number of Matthew scholars and interpreters, that in verse 36, he then moves to talk about the ultimate day. Which was, which was the second part of the, their question. Yes. The second part of the question is the end of the age. He separate, Jesus separates them out. Mm. Or at least he addresses the question separately. And in verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, yeah, nobody knows. Yeah. Not even the angels. He says, I don't even know. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's ultimately going to be a surprise. And that moves him into a saying about the flood. He compares it to the flood. Mm. It's very intentional, handing the world over to its chaos, handing Mm. Jerusalem over to the chaotic flood waters. Mm. And so he says... Handing the whole world. Hand, the whole in this case, order. handing the whole world, using the image of the flood to yeah. talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, which Jesus didn't make up that idea. Go read Isaiah 54. Isaiah himself described the destruction of Jerusalem as the flood waters but you, of Noah. You, you said now he's talking about the end of the age, not just the destruction of Jerusalem. Ah, that, uh, correct. It would be the fall of the ultimate Babylon. Okay. Y- yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Jerusalem is the new Babylon. But sorry, in the flood comments of Jesus, he says, for in those days before the flood, people were having a great time eating, drinking, marrying until Noah entered the ark. They didn't understand um, until the flood came and took them away. So the images of the flood waters of Tohu Vavuhu, of mm-hmm. chaos, people Washing being handed away. over to judgment and surprise, you're going about your daily life. Now you're gone. God, right? When God hands the world over hmm. to its own evil, and in, so that he can overcome evil and bring about the new creation. Oh, it would, interesting. It would be like the flood that takes the wicked away. Wow. And then he uses two other images of daily life. Yeah. One was when people in, in the days of Noah, eating, drinking, marrying. Yeah. And the flood came and took them away. Right. So there's going to be two guys working in the field. One taken. So it's, be the, two people. it's the wicked being taken away. I, I think this the most, makes the most sense of those sayings in context. So like so, the flood. So yeah, it's takes... actually the, ex- the exact opposite of the rapture interpretation. <laughs> right, yeah. Because <laughs> that's saying you're taken away positively. Yeah. But in context, I don't see how that makes any sense of what Jesus is getting at. Interesting. So it's like 
Like the flood wiped people away and handed them, them over. Away. Took them away. Mm-hmm. So when God hands over the big bad Babylon. But what's interesting is a flood, it's a weird flood that could take, that goes over two guys in a field and only one gets taken away. Oh, sure. Right? That's right. Yeah, the flood comes and takes away like the group as a group, the wicked. Yeah, yeah something. But then, yeah, then he's using the image of some other images of daily life. But then talking about, yeah, it's selective, right? Yeah. It's not everybody's. It's not going to drown everyone out. Yeah. Some people think also that here in these two sayings, two in the field, two grinding at the mill, one taken, one left, he's using the takeaway language from the flood, but that he's also using images. I forget. This was uh, Dale Allison in his commentary thinks that he, here he's also alluding to the fact that just in daily life in Galilee, Roman soldiers can just come and seize people, mm. haul them away, mm-hmm. um, that he's alluding to that experience of just surprise taking mm. by the enemy. So that would have been a normal kind of image. People are like, oh, yeah, taken away. I get that. Yeah, my uncle was out with my cousin in the fields just the other day, and the Roman soldiers some... came and just like, they took him away. We haven't seen him since. Yeah. That kind of thing. Interesting. Um, so I, either way, what Jesus is doing with Jerusalem and the end of the age is very similar to what we talked about in the first podcast of the Day of the Lord, of that kind of like bifocal view of the near and the far, but viewing them as together. Okay. Yeah. Here's the next question. Hello, Tim and John. This is Christelle from South Africa. My question is, if you know that you stay in a Babylon where there is state capture and corruption and a lot of violence uh, going on, uh, should one immigrate or should one stay put um, and just recognize it as the day of the Lord. Thank you. It's a great question, Crystal. I'm not sure one person can answer that for another. So, yeah, yeah we're talking about Babylon as this biblical image for just hu- unjust, corrupt human societies. Yeah, what if you look around one day and you're like, man. I'm in Babylon. This is so corrupt. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. Do you take off? Is that a smart move? Yeah. Do you like just move to the countryside and kind of create your own little commune <laughs> and just be like, guys, we can't Babylon out there. Yeah. Um, do you go to another country that is less Babylon? Yeah. Man, it's so funny. Like right now, because we're more of a global community, Yeah. you have an option now to live anywhere in the world that you mm. want to. Mm. I mean, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, you can't go live in North Korea, but yeah. there's a mm. service out there where it's for like, especially for like programmers and people who can kind of work from wherever. Mm. And they match you with cities that really fit your personality. Whoa. And they'll then try to get re- relocate you there, mm. help <laughs> you find a job or just l- help you just live there. Yeah. And so you take this like survey of like what you're looking for in life and they'll be like, oh, yeah. you want to live in Amsterdam. Whoa. Like that's probably the best option for you. Or you want to live in, yeah. you know, Vienna. Yeah. Whoa. And um, Whoa. it's really interesting. I, I took the quiz, and I don't remember what city it was. I didn't even know it what it was. Huh. I, I think it was in Italy somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I've never yeah. heard of that. But anyways, it just made me think of that because it's like mm, if you had that quiz mm. for Christians, like, okay, which country is mm. the most – what city mm-hmm. should you live in if mm-hmm. you want to not deal with Babylon? Yeah, it's interesting. Right? Or yeah. where the anti-Babylon yeah. is most – at mm-hmm. work, should all the Christians get up and be like, well, let's go move there. And like, mm. let's, that's not really what she's asking, but 
So let's start with what she's really asking. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, there's one sense in which I, I think the, the viewing the prophets as a lens to look through would mean that we probably will find portraits of Babylon in every human society mm-hmm. just by nature. That's the human condition. The human condition is Babylon. I think that's the point yeah. of Babylon in the Bible. Can't escape it. So there's one sense in which you can't escape it. Yeah. Go set up shop somewhere else. And it will become Babylon. Yeah, your commune with your friends will become some kind of Babylon will peek out, peek its nasty head. Yeah. Uh, Whatever. It's just, I think that's just part of the human condition. So uh, I think there's just different biblical images or texts that are relevant to the conversation. So um, one is Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. It's a famous passage. Literally in Babylon. They're in Babylon, literally in ancient (laughs) Babylon. And he says, yeah, you guys are going to be there a while until the day of the Lord on Babylon. Get comfy. So get comfy, build houses, and seek the shalom of Babylon for its uh, well-being is your well-being. Plant gardens. So that's the image of uh, own your identity as exiles and seek the common good. That seems to be the portrait that... Uh, Peter draws on in the letter of 1 Peter, where in the end, I I just remembered, he talks about the one who is in Babylon together, chosen with you, sends greetings. Seems like he's talking about the church community in Rome, Mm. but he uses Babylon (laughs) as the code for Rome. Nice. Wink, wink. Yeah, and chosen together with you. And he's writing to church communities uh, in what would be modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and he calls them exiles and immigrants mm. and wanderers uh, in chapters 1 and 2. Mm. So he, Peter conceives of the whole of Christian existence as life in exile mm. in Babylon. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. he doesn't tell them to move. He just says, bear witness to Jesus. Seek the common good. If people hurt you or kill you, bless them in the name of Jesus and trust that God will vindicate you. Mm. So that's an image of stay put and bear witness to uh, the true king of the world, even if it means hardship. Plant gardens and carry on. Pa- plant gardens and carry on. <laughs> so, but there probably would be other more specific situations where, you know, moving out. There are many, uh, for example, many uh, Middle Eastern Christians, mm. Arab Christians yeah. that have immigrated out of their ancient communities in yeah. Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan, really old, mm-hmm. like from the first five centuries of the church, mm-hmm. Bethlehem, and just because it's become so unlivable there. And so you can't make, that's why I said earlier, you probably can't make that decision on behalf of somebody else. Right. Because in, until you've lived through their hardship in a city or place, yeah. you, you can't know why they made the decision they made. So plant gardens and carry on, but don't judge people who do move out. Move out of Babylon. Babylon to a, a less terrible version of Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. It's a good question. Yeah. And it's a good place to end things. We didn't get to all of your questions, but in a way we kind of did. Yeah, we kind of covered the topics by most questions. And we also went on, holy cow. (laughs) This is like a whole separate part of the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for your questions, you guys. It's really stimulating. Yeah. Thanks for engaging with us at this level. And... We will do it again. Mm-hmm. I don't know on which topic, but we'll, we'll do it again. Yeah. Dave Lord. All right. Signing off. Thanks, you guys.